Hello, and thank you for joining us. My name is Claire haas Clavone, and I am the Chief Operating Officer at Engineers Without Borders USA. Welcome to another episode of NCWES's podcast series designed to showcase the work of professionally licensed engineers in humanitarian engineering. In this episode, you'll hear from a panel of humanitarian engineering and community development practitioners and professionals about their practice in the United States. For me, working in humanitarian engineering is a privilege and a dream profession. I started out as a mechanical engineer, and after a few years, I pursued a master's in civil and environmental engineering. Along the way, I also obtained my professional license, which opened up additional doors for me throughout my career. I came to EWB USA in 2016 to lead a team in creating a program to address critical infrastructure gaps in the US. And that program and its work is what we will focus on today. And we hope you enjoy this glimpse into the exciting work of humanitarian engineering. I would like to introduce our speakers today. Um, we have some great things going on. So we'll start with Sarah Schmig, who is Director of Department of Energy Programs for Engineering and Construction, Program Management and Environmental and Decommissioning Services at APTIM. Her background is in civil and environmental engineering, specializing in environmental cleanup and water resource issues on DOE and commercial nuclear projects. Sarah has supported EWB and our Community Engineering Corps projects since 2015, including completing the first ever domestic project for the Cedar Gulch Water Supply Treatment Project in Rapid City, South Dakota. We also have Andrew Beatty with us this morning. He's a project engineer in planning for Luden Water in Luden County, Virginia. His background in the water and utilities industry includes planning, land development, engineering, and construction management. Andrew has supported EWB and Community Eng Engineering Corps projects since 2015. Um, he also was involved with the Cedar Gulch Water Supply Treatment Project in Rapid City, South Dakota. And last but not least, Jean Holloway is with us from CERCAP. She is a technical assistance provider and has a long background in working with rural communities. She is an operator as well. And for those of you that may not be familiar with RCAP, um, they are a national network of nonprofit organizations working to provide technical assistance, training resources, and support to rural communities across the U.S. tribal lands and U.S. territories. And they've been a wonderful partner to us with Community Engineering Corp. I'm going to go ahead and turn it over to Sarah to start the presentation. All right. Thank you, Claire. We are all happy to be here today to talk with you about specifically Community Engineering Corps, but also our partners like RCAP. So the real goal of this presentation is to share examples of infrastructure projects and resources available to you for communities in need across the U.S. So we're going to talk about benefits and successes of the Community Engineering Corps program, funding resources at federal, state, and local levels, and then our community partners and advocates providing services to these communities in need. And we'll, we'll close out with three project examples that Andrew and I have worked on, and two of which Gene uh, Holloway has also worked on. So we'll give kind of some case studies and overview of those projects. We're gonna start talking about the Community Engineering Corps program. We're gonna talk about funding for critical infrastructure in these underserved communities. Specifically talk about Rural Community Assistance Partnership, which has been a great partner to Community Engineering Corps, as Claire mentioned. We'll talk about those projects and case studies and then close out with some lessons learned and opportunities for collaboration. Hopefully these will all be resources for you all to use going forward on some of your projects. 
Okay, I'm going to start with some background community engineering core. You know, CE core is an alliance between Engineers Without Borders, American Society of Civil Engineers, and American Waterworks Association. Those three organizations came together to develop this program that really brings together the technical professionals, students, and communities across the U.S. and U.S. territories to uh, provide services domestically. So the Community Engineering Corps mission is to bring underserved communities and technical resources together to advance local engineering solutions in the U.S. This program facilitates the critical infrastructure needs through bringing together those, those resources and to address then the infrastructure challenges. An example of services that we provide are engineering analyses, assessment of funding alternatives, those kind of things. And types of completed and current E4 projects include things in agriculture, like community gardens, stormwater management projects, civil works, which could be roads or trails, erosion control, energy projects and solar power or energy audits, structures like structural assessments, uh, roofing projects. And then lastly, water and sanitation and water supply projects, which actually are the three projects that we'll focus on today, all three of our Community Engineering Corps projects that we'll talk about were in the water supply or water treatment project type. We're going to focus more on engineering services and projects, less on the construction side. And then also in terms of fundraising, you know, there's different options, funding mechanisms, and as well as there's different approvals and project process, which really focus on the development, planning, execution, and closeout. So we want to focus on things where we can provide services to communities in need, we make sure we're compliant with all U.S. laws, regulations at federal, state, local levels. And really, this the idea here is that we are partnering with these communities. They've applied to the program with some kind of need. EWB accepts their application or really actually, you know, the whole EWB, AWWA and ASE, you know, review the applications, respond to them. A project team like ours adopts the project and then we can move into the planning stages. So really, then we, we focus on assigning the responsible engineer in charge. We sign an engineering services agreement and we move into project execution, which could include work plans, status reports as needed, obviously conducting site visits as needed, and then finally completing a final report or preliminary engineering um, report, whatever that may be. In this first segment, we heard a little bit about the structure of Community Engineering Corps and our work in the communities that need it most. I'll be honest though, here in the US, the engineering work that we do is the easy part. The hard part of the work is connecting communities to the resources they need to address basic needs and their infrastructure gaps. For me, this is what attracts me to humanitarian engineering. It's engineering plus so many other things. Coming up in this next segment, we'll hear about financing mechanisms, another very important aspect of our work. I'm going to turn over to Andrew to talk a little bit about funding for critical infrastructure in underserved communities. Thank you, Sarah. I would, we'd like to talk a little bit about the different aspects of funding, where some of these sources are, are located, and we'll look at the federal options versus the more local ones, the state and local funding. We're also going to discuss the sort of public side of funding versus, you know, the private options that, that are available out there. And then we'll, we'll, we'll talk a little bit and discuss some of the typical requirements or qualifications that are that are required to access these funds. This isn't intended to be an exhaustive list of funding opportunities that are out there. As Sarah mentioned earlier, 
the projects we have specifically worked on as a project team have focused on the, the water and supply and water distribution side of communities in, in need. So most of these funding programs that we've done some research on are targeted towards those needs. So at the federal level, first off, the US EPA has many different programs that offer funding for training and technical assistance. The key ones related to, to water supply and water quality and, and management offer assistance for small, typically smaller water drinking water systems. There are opportunities for small community and on-site decentralized wastewater systems, as well as assistance for private well owners. And typically those would be for individual and property owners, individual residences. Another avenue where funding can be sourced is from the U.S. Department of Agriculture. They have a couple of federal programs for water and waste disposal assistance. And the goal of these funds are to help grow rural economies specifically. And typically these, from what we've seen, these communities of need are more rural based. Moving on to more of the state and, and local funding programs, of course, there are the state revolving fund programs, many of those and, and the conditions to apply for those programs, you know, will vary by state. But typically, the eligible projects um, would include like upgrades to existing drinking water facilities, distribution systems that allow for the consolidation of uh, nearby systems in order to improve resiliency and, and capacity, or if there was any water quality issues, as well as offering funding for some of the auxiliary activities that are required in order to implement a solution, those being the planning, the design, and you know, construction management of particular drinking projects. There are community development block grant programs available as well. The eligible projects um, do include water and sewer projects, um, but they also offer funding for, for other social infrastructure, such as housing and economic development projects. Touching a little bit on the public versus the private funding sources, as mentioned, and those funds come across and can be either grants where the money does not need to be repaid or they can come in the form of loans, which typically have very affordable rates and, and long payback horizons to, to make the payback affordable for the communities that, that are in need of these assistance. The state revolving fund programs, which I'm sure many of you are aware of, do offer some principal forgiveness in order to make projects affordable, but we do know that the application process is very competitive for these funds. Looking more at the local level on the, on the public side of funding, you can reach out to the county that your project is located in. Sometimes they can offer grants to offset some of the costs for upgraded water systems and improvements, or they can offer loans if you work with them that would typically be paid back through some sort of taxing mechanism on the property. Perhaps like a property liens would be required in order to secure the loan. Looking slightly differently, but also in terms of the county in, in trying to save some costs on, on projects, if there is a nearby development and the county accepts proffers, a nearby, nearby development project that perhaps is going to upgrade a road or bring a water line you know, more close to the community you need, you may be able to sort of leverage those projects, work with the county, work with the developer to see it so you can try and maximize that opportunity and save some costs. For example, if you were trying to fund or install a water line, if you knew the road was going to be upgraded, try to time that so that you can save some costs on, on sort of repaving the, the road, for example. 
And then finally, the other option that, that we've seen and, and, and heard about is actually trying to secure funds uh, by looking through what we call describe as another lens. In the DMV, the DC, Maryland, Virginia area, there's quite a few sort of historical communities. So there may be the opportunity to access historical or preservation funds for these communities, especially if they are on the sort of national landmark register. You know, the goal of some of these preservation funds is to ensure the, the vitality and, and livability of these communities and the, the long-term viability of them. So if there are water quality or, or water supply needs, sometimes these funds can, can be used for projects like that. So that's just another way of looking at it. I'm going to turn over just briefly to Jean, and she's going to describe a little bit more on the private funding and sources that are available. Thank you, Andrew. Private loans are sometimes very tough for particularly small systems to get because bankers don't look at what they have as good collateral. They may own a small piece of land that the well house is on or a small piece of land where the well is actually located, but they really don't have any bankable collateral. So it can be very difficult for them to get a loan commercially sometimes, particularly if they're a very tiny customer base and can also be cost prohibitive. They can be way too expensive. Uh, Public-private partnerships are a possibility, but the right players have to be involved. You have to have the developer who needs service and maybe you waive impact fees, what have you. One of the best examples from my own experience some years ago was a town that I was a circuit rider town manager for, and they got a new water tower built by an electric utility because the electric utility needed land that the town owned right next to the substation where the water tower was. So they built the town a new water tower in exchange for the land. So it is a definite possibility if all the pieces fall into place, but it can be a nightmare if, if you're trying to put that jigsaw puzzle together too. There are community foundations that will fund certain things, certain neighborhoods, certain eligibilities. Very often there's portions that they can fund, like if it's a low-income neighborhood, they might a community foundation might fund the hookup charges. There are lots of different combinations. We've been very fortunate in Delaware, where I work, with the Delaware Community Foundation. They funded a program for us to pump out people's septics, low-income people's septics, because of COVID, where the septics were getting so overloaded. Community Foundation of the Eastern Shore of Maryland is another good example. There are rural councils, depending on the state you're in. There is a Maryland Rural Council, and they have funding for economic development and things that go to support economic development. Their funds are very competitive as well. And then finally, there are private foundations, and there are probably as many private foundations almost as there are water systems, but they usually have specific areas of funding and specific requirements for eligibility. And with that, I'd like to turn it back over to Sarah, and she's going to talk about uh, eligibility requirements. All right. So in summation of our assessments of public and private funding and federal and local state funding, there's some commonalities that, that tend to come out or requirements that come out that are typical for qualification of these sources of funding. So the first and foremost is demonstration of public health needs. So this could be acute, chronic, or potential health problems for the community, a non-compliance issue with federal, state, or local regulations, or a system that's lacking safety or reliability. So that's usually the kind of primary requirement. Next is demonstrating limited or insufficient financial capability. 
in this case, it could be inability to obtain commercial credit or a loan under reasonable terms. Or for example, Community Engineering Corps, one of their requirements is that the median household income or MHI is equal to or less than 80% of the state's MHI. Or another example is to have the poverty rate that is equal to or greater than the national poverty rate. So these are just examples of how to qualify then for financial support based on limited or, or insufficient financial capability. And then uh, size of community is often a consideration. For many of these rural areas, towns uh, where these projects are done, populations have to be less than 10,000. And this does include tribal lands and other rural areas and colonies. For example, 90% of the community engineering core projects do have less than 2,500 people. And our three projects that we'll talk about later actually were all communities of 50 people or less, so quite, quite smaller on the smaller side. Next requirement we often see are complying with water assessments or you know, audits reports. So that could be a conservation plan or it could be uh, completing a preliminary engineering report, which is specifically a requirement for USDA grants and, and state revolving funds, which we'll talk about a little bit with our own projects. And then lastly, uh, there often is a requirement for a community contribution or dollar match. For example, state revolving funds do require communities to contribute 12.5% of the total cost. And so that can be calculated in different ways, but often they want to see that the community does have skin in the game. And it is, it is rare to find a grant that is a full 100% grant. All right. Well, that is quite the crash course in financing. And this indicates that there is indeed a lot that goes into humanitarian engineering work. Aside from connecting communities to resources, another core tenant of this work is partnership. In this next segment, you'll hear about how organizations come together in benefit of these communities that we work so closely with. Building partnerships like these has been one of the most rewarding experiences in my career. So I'm gonna turn it back over to Jean and talk about the Rural Community Assistance Partnership and then specifically her area region with SIRCAP. Okay, thank you, Sarah. As uh, Claire said in the beginning, SIRCAP is one of six nonprofits that make up the Rural Community Assistance Partnership, and that partnership covers every state and U.S. territory. Our mission is to grow the work of all the partner organizations, but the overall goal is to help small towns and rural communities and rural residents. We all advocate for rural areas and rural residents. Um, we have shared resources that any region or any state can use, such as prepared course materials for training, standard forms for technical managerial financial capacity assessments. We have risk and resiliency uh, assessment templates, emergency response templates. Water and wastewater are our main focus, but they're not our only focus. The partnership itself has a lot of different objectives in supporting these rural areas and the different partners and organizations work in those areas. Probably the most important role that they fulfill, the RCAP partnership fulfills, is advocacy for funding. But they also do research, such as a survey recently in 2020 on the impact of COVID on small systems. And that has provided a lot of data to support asking for more funding, but also to highlight the fact that the smaller the system, the more the impact of COVID in terms of lost revenue, people not being able to pay their bills and so forth. Partnering with other organizations like the CE Corps is absolutely vital to our organization. 
the small communities, the tiny communities that, that we have worked with uh, with CEC are almost small enough that they wouldn't be a community water system. But the services that we provide and the services that the CEC Corps has provided for these tiny communities has been what I like to call a but for. Uh, I started my career as a grant writer and they had to, you had to prove the but for of whatever you were requesting. And it's a very much a but for the services of the CE Corps. These small communities would not have been able to get the service that they have. They couldn't afford it. They weren't even sure how to go about it. So it's it's been absolutely vital to our communities. We absolutely are trying to improve the quality of life for low income and rural residents. We work with individuals, homeowners with well assessments and things like that. Uh, we work with community organizations and advocates, HOAs, municipalities, counties. And these smaller communities with their smaller customer base absolutely depend on the low cost or no cost assistance that we provide and that CEC Corps can provide. I'd like to turn it over now to uh, the case studies. Andrew will talk about uh, some of the work that they've done for us in Maryland. Thank you, Gene. So yeah, little overview here of the three projects that our project team has worked on and, and that Gene has been involved with it, the last two. But the first project was called uh, the Cedar Gulch Water Supply Project located in South Dakota. Our second project is the Independence Village Water Supply Project located in Maryland. And the third project, Laurel Water Supply, which is an ongoing project, is also located in, in Maryland. So just to give you a brief overview of this first project, the Cedar Gulch Water Supply Project. The Cedar Gulch community is a really small community that, that is located outside of Rapid City, South Dakota. It was a developer-built uh, subdivision, and the developer had grand plans to, to make a much larger community, but uh, unfortunately suffered some financial difficulties, with the result being that there is an existing 16-lot subdivision, at least at the time of this project back in, in 2016. Ten of those lots were occupied six were still vacant, and there was approximately 30 people, families living uh, in that community. They were served by a single off-site community well. It was located rather up a hill on an adjacent parcel. So there was some legal aspects to this project, which we didn't, didn't focus on, but highlighted um, some of the challenges that, that were there because this was off-site and not uh, within the, the sort of HOA or the, the community's land. The project came forward through the RCAP Midwest Assistance Program. They were the advocates and representatives for the community and submitted to the Community Engineering Corps describing primarily water quality issues that were due to uh, naturally occurring radium and gross alpha uh, within the groundwater. And because of this issue, they were non-compliant with the South Dakota drinking water requirements. So Part of our process as, as we worked through this project to try and help the community, we as a project team completed two site visits. And um, as Sarah mentioned, we're, we're based in the, in the DC area. So we uh, flew out to South Dakota to visit with the community and meet with them. We also partnered with the Engineers Without Borders uh, South Dakota State University student chapter because they were more a little bit more locally based and could also collect information and be an additional resource for us as, as part of the project team while we were working on this project. So the goal was really to try and address their water quality concerns. And to do that, we looked at a number of alternatives. And in order to come up with at least a professional recommendation, but to what 
Jean said, not to tell them what to do, but to offer what was viable options for the community to consider. We established this evaluation criteria. The four uh, criteria were protection of human health and environment and compliance with the regulations. And we wanted to assess the short-term and long-term effectiveness of each uh, potential solution. We looked at the implementability of each of these solutions, how easy or difficult those solutions would be. And then finally, we wanted to consider cost as a criteria. The four alternatives, four main alternatives we looked at were point of entry and point of use technologies. These would be individual systems that would be installed in each of the residences. We looked into ion exchange up at the, the well site. We also looked at reverse osmosis. Everyone knows that that can be quite an expensive option. And then uh, lime softening. And as a result of, of our analysis, our main recommendation based on that evaluation criteria was to install point of entry or point of use uh, water softeners with iron pretreatment in each of the homes. This was the most cost-effective option. And as I mentioned, uh, because the well was off-site, there was some concern about being able to do work closer to, to the well. Also, as a result of our assessment, we got asked to do a phase two for this project, which was really to assess their water distribution system, look into water pressure and storage needs for the community. And so that was a, that was a follow-up effort where we recommended capping along dead end in the water distribution system that had been initially installed for future development, but which never occurred. This had the benefit also of improving water turnover within the distribution system and thus having sort of a water quality impact as well. And then uh, we looked at a number of storage options, a new ground storage tank, a hydro and pneumatic pressure tank, as well as individual storage tanks at, at the homes. And each one of those options appeared to be feasible and we didn't have a particular uh, recommendation. They, it all sort of came out in the wash, but we did list out for the community some of the pros and cons of each of those options. As a result of these two reports um, that we provided to the community, Cedar Gulch were able to implement the recommended actions and come back into compliance with the, the water quality regulations. We received feedback from the Midwest Assistance Program that the community home values had increased as a result of solving this issue for them because there were some property owners looking to, to sell their homes, but were having difficulty because of the water issues they were experiencing, as well as whenever we presented the report to the community in person, they shared their, their great appreciation to, to us for, for our efforts. On a personal note, we also had the, the benefit of our project team and this project being featured in the AWWA's uh, connection publication as being the, the first community engineering core project that was completed. So that was, that was nice. Now I'll turn it over to Sarah to talk about the next two projects. Thank you, Andrew. So our next project we worked on as a project team is the Independence Village Water Supply Project, which is located outside of Charlotte Hall, Maryland in Charles County. This was a community of 24 homes served by a single community well. The HOA owned and operated the water system for the community and essentially continued to run into major system breaks and costly repairs that required maintenance and repairing. This was a big expense for the community, which ultimately really could not afford it. They, they struggled to raise the funds for every major break that occurred. And so the project objective was to assess alternatives to manage the existing infrastructure and plan for the future, a sustainable you know, alternative or, or source for the community to rely on for water supply in the future. So in terms of implementation, you know, we met with the community, really understood kind of what the needs were 
And so with our kind of evaluation criteria of how we assess all terms, we, these are very similar to what we use for Cedar Gulch, but we did add a key one, which is the social considerations. And that was really important in this case. And I'll talk a little bit about that in project outcomes, because for this community, they were all reliant on the HOA to provide the services and the operator, et cetera, to manage the system. So it was not on each individual household to manage or maintain their water system. And so we looked at five different alternatives. The first being upgrading the water supply system to Charles County standards, and then turn over operations of the system to Charles County. Second alternative was a major upgrade to the system and implementing an ongoing maintenance program. Third alternative was a minor upgrade to the system and implementing an ongoing maintenance program. Fourth option was implementing what we call the utility management best practices, which could include installing low flow faucets or toilets, shards, those kind of things, rainfall capture, those kind of alternatives, and then establishing an emergency management fund, which would include, you know, adjusting their rates and assessing how much really they needed to address any kind of major break. And then lastly, alternative five was installing new wells for each home. So what this would mean is decentralizing the system, you know, taking the system offline, installing new wells at each home, and essentially each homeowner would then become responsible for managing and maintaining their own well and their own water supply, essentially. Ultimately, alternative five was recommended based on the evaluation criteria because it, it met all the criteria and was by far the lowest cost. However, I'll talk a little bit here in Project Outcomes, how the social considerations really did impact the community's ultimate decision. So we did present the alternatives to the community. We discussed our recommendations and why we were making those recommendations. We submitted the final report in July, 2019. And ultimately the HOA board did decide to retain ownership of that centralized system. And what they did is kind of implement a hybrid approach to our different alternatives and instituted higher rates and then a, a maintenance and emergency fund to address any future breaks. And this was decided uh, by the community because they really could not get the buy-in from every household to install a, a new and then maintain their own wells. It was very difficult to get every household on board for that. And so they kind of went with this hybrid approach to keep their centralized system because of that. And so that is kind of a, an example of where we make a recommendation. The community ultimately decides what is the best fit for them or the best path forward. And in this case, the social considerations really did, you know, tend to outweigh some of the costs and other criteria. Ultimately, this whole process got the community a lot more engaged and involved, more active in the HOA. And since they have been able to recruit more members and, and like I said, implement those new rates and emergency funds just to make sure that they are covered and they're able to manage any future maintenance and repairs. And then moving on to our last project, as Andrew mentioned, this project is ongoing. It is not complete, so we don't yet have the project outcomes. But we want to talk about this because it's another um, great project that we've been able to work on with CERCAP and Gene as well. And so uh, Laurel Water Supply is located outside of Indian Head, Maryland. This is a community of about 16 homes, approximately 50 residents that are served by a single community well. 
The well collapsed in December 2020, which caused the need for emergency water supply. They did not have you know, any water at that point. And uh, an estimate for a new well far exceeded the HOA savings and a private loan really was cost prohibitive. And this is really circumstance where funding alternatives became very important. And so CERCAP was able to help oral water supply apply for a USDA loan that was approved to install and replace the well. CERCAP also awarded $20,000 towards the cost of the emergency water supply, which was brought in by tankers essentially into a, a temporary storage tank. And ultimately, the water system age indicated that additional uh, system improvements were going to be needed. It wasn't just the well. It could be other aspects of the system that failed. And so CERCAP contacted Community Engineering Corps to evaluate the options and complete a preliminary engineering report, which is what our team is currently doing. And, and hopefully this will be used for the subsequent USDA applications that are needed. And so uh, our implementation plan and our desired outcomes include you know, applying for that additional USDA funding after the preliminary engineering report is completed. And I'm at least glad to say though that the new well was installed from the first round of USDA funding and it became operational in August, 2021. So they do have at least a, a water supply right now. A vulnerability assessment has been drafted by CIRCAP. It is currently under review by the LWS board. And I have heard that in recent days, it, it's actually moving forward and they've approved it with a few changes. So that's great progress for the community. And ultimately our desired project outcomes are to assess you know, alternatives for managing the, the current or existing infrastructure, provide a plan for the future of the community water supply, assess what, what options they have you know, going forward, and then complete a vulnerability assessment on their utility. We are expecting to complete this project in our analysis by the end of the year, so we'll have a busy few months coming up. And now I'm going to turn it back over to Andrew to talk a little bit about lessons learned and um, opportunities for collaboration. Thanks, Sarah. There's one thing we want you to remember from this presentation is just really to know that there are communities of need that exist perhaps a lot closer to home than you may realize. It's easy to think that just because we live in the U.S. that everything is, is great, but there are still a lot of folks out there who need assistance and your help is always greatly appreciated. We know that and we've seen that through our, through our personal experience and the projects we've worked on. We hope that yeah, we've given you a little bit of an overview of, of some of the resources that are available to these communities for the community representation. That is the RCAP network as an example. There are funding opportunities out there. Try to be as creative as you can and on thinking about where funds can be accessed. And then finally, the technical support that is on offer is essentially you yourselves as, as engineers and as you know, supporters for these, these communities. You are a great resource to help and solve and help address their, their issues. We have found uh, through our experience that it really is key to understand the community, their needs, and, and what the goals of the, the project are. Bear in mind what the end, end point of, of whatever deliverable it is that you're being tasked with, with providing is. If it is to secure funding of some sort, then make sure your report is tailored in a way that meets all the eligibility criteria and addresses all of those needs. But then as well, remember that consider the audience, uh, as we say, about who's reading these reports. It isn't necessarily just technical people who understand the ins and outs of water systems, and for example, there are community members who, who want to read this and under, want to understand what is going on, what the solutions are, what's 
available to them and really help them have a firm grasp of how they can then make a decision moving forward and what the best option is for them. And then as I'm sure you're all well aware, communication is critical to the success of any of these, these projects. There cannot be enough communication. We find that you know, whenever you really spend the time to get to know the community and community representatives, understand what their needs are, make them feel that they are being heard and that their concerns are valid and that, that you can provide some assistance to them and help them to address them, that really helps to establish the trust and with the community and helps them buy into the process as you're moving forward through each of these projects. We've also learned through our experience that it's very helpful to, to manage expectations in your communication with the community. For example, in the Cedar Gulch project, the first project we worked on, we received some feedback that they were surprised at how long it took us to complete some of our reports, even though we felt we'd kind of explained what our schedule was. But we later learned that that was a result of the assumption that that some folks had made that we were a full-time project team dedicated to working specifically on their project. They didn't realize that we all had full-time jobs elsewhere and other responsibilities and that, that we were trying to do this on a volunteer basis for them. And whenever we explained that, then they were very much appreciative and, and understood why the project took the time it did take. And then finally, don't just describe what, what will be achieved out of each of your deliverables. And it's helpful to describe what will not be achieved as well. For feasibility studies or alternative assessments, help the community understand that this is just the first step in a series of many steps that it's going to take to implement any sort of solution for them that, you know, you're not going to get a design or something straight out of, out of this first study and first look at the problem. And then just touching briefly on opportunities uh, for collaboration, please, yeah, reach out to the RCAP representatives. They've been a great partner to us. Their website there, www.rcap.org for whichever area you're in. You can also reach out to and speak with county staff and officials. They have great local knowledge. We'll know if there are communities that are struggling and if there is and some opportunity where you can provide assistance. Similar to that, reaching out to local health departments. They have a wealth of knowledge on wells and septic systems and where areas of concern are. We've worked with them as well on some of these projects, seeking information. And then as part of this organization, and if you're a professional chapter or student chapter, we encourage you all to try and partner with other chapters and uh, chapters within other organizations. If you are working across the country, we find we had real, got a lot of value out of partnering with the student chapter on the Cedar Gulch project. Great. Thank you, Sarah, Andrew, and Jean. Great presentation. To our audience, I hope you have enjoyed this glimpse into the world of humanitarian engineering in the United States. For me, professional licensure, which allowed me to develop experience in engineering practice, opened the door and made it possible for me to engage in this intersectional, fascinating work. If you'd like to learn more or get involved, please visit www.ewb-usa.org.